Teresa Sara provides ideas on how we can keep evergreen as professors and educators on episode 143 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm really excited to be welcoming to the show today, Teresa Sara. She's been employed at Case Medical Center since 2012, and she's responsible for the Department of Medicine's training activities. She has experience implementing different kinds of case methodology in the courses since she joined in 2007. And she's developed and managed the specialist training in intensive care at Red Cross College with case methodology and pedagogical pillars. She's also in recent years been pedagogically responsible for introducing university studies and interactive learning for new students in the nursing program. For more about her, you can go to the show notes and look at the profile all the way down at the bottom. And that's at Teaching in Higher Ed dot com slash 143. Teresa, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. And one of the things I knew I would stumble over a little bit is the pronunciation of your name. And I just wonder if you would pronounce it for us so we make sure that the audience gets to hear it correctly. So I'm very used to having it pronounced in the English way, but the Swedish way is, or Norwegian, uh, that is Teresa Sara. Sara. Is there kind of a roll of the tongue? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, I know that you have been listening to the show for a while. And you were asking me how I first heard of you. And I thought it was Twitter. And I'm excited because today we're going to talk a little bit about how we stay evergreen in our own teaching. And, and I know that Twitter is going to be a part of that. But before we get to that, could you talk a little bit about how you got into higher ed and a little bit about your career journey? So I have a background in nursing and I have been a ICU, that's intensive care unit nurse in the pediatric intensive care for a long while. But in that, it, it was kind of a strive for me that always kind of trying to do things a little bit better and how can we be better <laughs> in our job and in our professionals. So I started teaching and as a lot of professionals in, in healthcare education, or healthcare profession, we are clinical and we educate clinically all the time. So the step for me from doing it clinically to do it and doing it in a program or in the academic life, that wasn't really big. It was, I mean, you need a master's degree and I got that and, and then I was rolling in, in a sense. So my first educational, big educational thing I did was I was able to design a curriculum for a critical care nursing program. And that was a bit tricky, but I had good colleagues with me and uh, I kind of became very curious in the pedagogy behind it because we started with a very active learning strategy uh, in it. So 
but yeah, that was, that was how I started. And I was doing it at the Red Cross University College in Stockholm. And it was very close to the clinic I have been working with uh, before and so on. So it kind of rolled on from that, I, you could say. It's very rare that I hear someone talk about their first class that they ever developed was one that involved active learning. Usually we start by making the mistake of thinking that our role is to pour our knowledge into someone else. And so, and it sounded like maybe you had a mentor in that, or that was something that came intuitively to you? By all all means, I had good colleagues with me. And I think being used to working in an ICU, then you're used to working in teams. So for me, it was very good to have the, that faculty team with me in, in developing the program. So I was by all, no means the one that was pedagogy, the heavy part in, in, uh, in the beginning, but my colleague was, uh, she was, she was very driven in that. Uh, so she had a, a view of active learning and case-based learning in it. So we teamed up well and I learned a lot. Oh, it's wonderful. So great when you have the ability to collaborate like that. Were there times where you felt early on in your teaching that you wished for even more of a connection? And and perhaps is that what then drove you toward things like Twitter and other opportunities to connect? Yeah, I think so. When you when you've been working for a while, I I I did that uh, uh, program for for almost I think I did it five years. And then after a while, when you want to learn new things and, and uh, stay current, and and I had been to Boston, to Harvard, uh, both Harvard Business School and Harvard Mesa Institute and learned more. And you, you have new questions in your head and you, your organization within that you work in, uh, maybe you're the only one that have those questions within your little silo, but you're definitely not alone in the world with those questions. So it's uh, it's a very good way to, to reach out and, and uh, get inspired and learn more, I would say. We had a really good Twitter conversation the other day because um, a couple times a year I teach in a doctoral program to educators. And one of the parts of the class is for many of them starting to blog for the first time and for many of them starting to use Twitter for the first time. And one of the women in the program, she really wrote such a delightful blog and she really has a gift at that sort of thing and she had made it private and we talked a little bit about why that was and she had started to get weird messages and it wasn't anything that was it would be cyberbullying it wasn't anything that extreme but of course it's her first time putting herself out there like that and and as it is she's a very attractive woman and so that was part of it was inappropriate comments like, oh, will you leave your boyfriend to, you know, (laughs) come see me or something like that. And so it was great because some of the people who are on Twitter, they're so respectful of, yes, we need to keep ourselves safe online. And I got a couple of resources that I'll be sharing, you know, in a blog post at some point in the future, but ways we can help keep ourselves safe. But I always feel a little bit sad, I guess, when, and, and by the way, this young woman does plan on starting to blog and to learn more about how to keep herself safe. I think this story is probably going to have a happy ending. (laughs) But when you think about, yeah, what you're describing, when you think about what's possible, it's, I mean, it's really staggering to think about. We can have connections with people all over the world who we possibly have more in common with than, or at least the same kinds of questions like you were saying than people who are right next door to us down the hall. 
Yes, and I think I think sometimes we are too afraid. I think you had a a great part with I can't remember who now, but about Twitter and about the, how we get those people that are afraid of Twitter uh, to actually try try it out. Um, most of them hear those uh, the examples that are very horrifying, uh, and they stay away. But I think uh, that's a bit sad because I think there's so much good in it. That for me, yes, that is. I would like more of my colleagues where I work at the Red Cross or at the Karolinska Institute. I would, I would love for more faculty development within Twitter, and and because I think yeah, we can learn more together. Tell us about the chat that you lead on Twitter and what that's done for you and what it could possibly do for others. So I have been fortunate enough to to uh, go to. Boston and the Harvard Macy Institute a couple of times and taking courses and now I'm I'm also faculty for one of the courses but as a, a participant a year ago me and two uh, of my colleagues Elisa Hall and Justin Kruter we uh, kind of uh, started this monthly chat with the topics that are relevant for the alumni and we have tried to to uh, make it a little bit more than just sharing articles and uh, we would like to to foster not foster our colleagues but in a way to to um, try out and stay evergreen and stay active and and learn from each other because it is it is a way like i ha- can have great thoughts on my own but they always get better if i bounce them a couple of times with other others and we need to do that and we need to do that regularly just in case yeah. anyone has never participated in a Twitter chat before, how would I even know that one was, go- how do, what does one look like? What, how do I know something is a chat and how, how would I chat myself? How do, what are some of the signs or the tools that you used in this chat process? So I'm, I'm no expert, I would, I would say that. And the chat I'm talking about is, isn't big, but it's, uh, I think we have developed a community within it, so uh, I think we we are getting there slowly. Um, but uh, in a Twitter chat, you you, you have a uh, hashtag that you follow, uh, so you're not you don't need to follow a lot of people. You just look at the hashtag, you search for the hashtag, and uh, and then you uh, on a certain time you go online and and someone is welcoming you and and having those. Uh, announced questions or, or and also the kind of set of netiquette and how to respond and so on. So I've gone up on Twitter right now. Oh, <laughs> I'm laughing because my search results produced nothing, but it's because that wasn't Twitter. <laughs> I, it's a case of having too many windows open on my computer right now. So if I go to hashtag, which would be the number sign, hashtag HMI chat, I'll see the default is the top tweets that have come out under this chat, but I could also click on latest and then click on people and see the kinds of people. But as of this recording, there's not one going on right now, but I can still take a peek at past conversations. But if I wanted to participate in one live, I would then need to know when it was actually going to happen and and that kind of thing. And there's just wonderful when you can be live and, and have a chance to do that. For people who are newer to Twitter, you can just type right in the search box. But there's also tools like TweetDeck and there's Hootsuite 
uh, is another one that I know of where you can have it sort of doing the searching and the showing of it to you. And if I'm going to, I haven't, I don't participate in too many Twitter chats, but occasionally I'll go to the actual a desktop client that'll let me see things a little better if it's one I really want to pay close, close attention to. Yeah, and th- that's a, a more common a Twitter chat is uh, a certain time and stays a certain duration of time also. When we do, because we have a global community, we have it open for 24 hours. Mm. And then we have two live uh, discussions that goes on to kind of capture uh, <laughs> some of the time zones. I, I know uh, we haven't really in Australia is a bit difficult, but they're doing the first one. Uh, it's okay, but it's, uh, it is difficult to get, get it. But uh, I can uh, see that we are getting activity during the full 24 hours as well, and, uh, which is good because also uh, when the live discussion is on, it could be a little bit messy if you're not uh, used to it, mm-hmm. uh, following threads. And it's easier to go back and oh, that was a comment, uh, hmm, if I want to linger a little bit more and maybe think about it and ponder what will I answer, I, I, have, I have the time to do it. Yeah, that's the nice thing. It sounds like you're accommodating a much more global audience for your chats, which is wonderful because it sounds like the, yeah. a lot of the alumni that come from the Harvard Macy Institute are coming from all over the world. They are. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, talk a little bit. I know another thing you were introduced to along the way in your career is using cases in your studying. Could you share a little bit about that and how that keeps you stay staying evergreen with your teaching? So this is a link between them because uh, when it comes to Twitter chats, I uh, have uh, an al- allergic reaction when when every when someone just put out links to things mm-hmm. and doesn't really. <laughs> say something about them or just say, oh, this is a great article. And for me, that that is kind of, uh, and this is very personal. I know that uh, there are many people that are appreciating this, but I would like to know why would you think it's a great article? Mm. It's like when, when in a, dis- a discussion uh, in the classroom, I wouldn't assume that as an educator, you would uh, uh, allow or a student say that, well, I've read this and this. Well, and then what? <laughs> you need to kind of fill it with a little bit more of yourself in it or your interpretation of it. So uh, I think my my approach to the Twitter chat and how we moderate the Twitter chat is a way I'm used to facilitate a case-based uh, session. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have linked those two. Uh, get it a bit more fuller discussion and maybe also a deeper learning in it for for the participants. Did you use cases right away in your teaching or is that something that you came across uh, in a little bit further down the road? So uh, when I started full-time as an educator with that critical care nursing program I was talking about, we uh, integrated it and we uh, we actually started with case-based learning then. Now, when I kind of look in the rear mirror, I see that well, we called it case-based learning. Uh, it might not have fulfilled all the elements of it, but I think we did <laughs> we did as good as we could at the time, and and I think we uh, achieved the kind of discussion that we were aiming for. 
So in what we aim for in case-based learning is that uh, you're given a complex situation with a certain context and the students are kind of uh, getting curious and get to read a lot about it. So instead of studying laws, if you're in law school or studying physiology and pharmacology only in silence, as you do in medical school, uh, you kind of apply things. So in law school, you practice, you, you, uh, you are uh, studying the practice of law instead of just the law. And now uh, in, uh, in medical school, you, you study the application of medicine or nursing in my, my case. So uh, it is a way of getting through the noise as a student because that is what real life looks like and figure out what, what is important. And uh, in the facilitated discussion, you need to not only look at the facts and get the facts right, uh, you need to analyze it a lot and motivate your actions and kind of consider consequences in doing it. And this you do with peers. And again, no brain is <laughs> very smart alone. <laughs> you need those other perspectives. You, you might have gone into the session and think, well, I have it all figured out. But when you go out, you should be able to say, well, I thought I got it figured out, but now I got it figured out, like, boom, <laughs> this much. <laughs> what are some of the common yeah. mistakes that people make when they are first trying to develop their own ability to facilitate cases? I think is it, it is the educated uh, role that is a bit uh, tricky in because then you go from being the expert to being the one facilitate learning. Mm-hmm. And you're not the one that are going to get the answers right. That is the students. So it's, uh, you, you are facilitating the discussion, but you're not answering a lot of questions because they are figuring out themselves. Um, but also the cases are not supposed to be the right and wrong answers in it. It, it is the tricky one, the, the complex one. The goal of the discussion is not to, to come to consensus or come to conclusion that, well, this is it. Uh, the goal of the discussion is to kind of paint the picture. It could be this, but it could also be this. But if it is like this, the other thing, well, we should consider this and that and so on. So it, it kind of paints the, a fuller picture. And being able to do that, the thought is that you're also able to apply that in different contexts afterwards, because that is the tricky part when you, when you learn something, um, that you, you do it in one context, but to transfer it to another context, that is really hard. And, and we need to, we need to um, push a little bit to be able to, okay, how would that, this look in another context? And that comes to us as well as educators. If I go back to the Twitter chat, okay, we have discussed this. So how would that apply in your own context or another context? Because we need to try to uh, try our mind in that way, in those kind of roads, <laughs> pathways, and uh, to be able to to, to do that transfer easy, more easy. You were reminding me the other day I had a conversation. It wasn't, it was a 
asynchronous conversation, but back and forth with one of the doctoral students who had, they had just written their first research paper for my course, not for the program, but for my course. And some of them are still struggling a little bit with not using the databases as much as they should in their academic writing. And I was giving them the feedback that those are going to be gold mines for you and getting you know better at searching and using some Boolean logic and things like that in their own academic research. She wrote a paper that was brilliant and both followed the rules, but also broke them. So I'll give you an example. She, she wrote her paper on on fake news, on digital literacy. And so she cited the Huffington Post. And you would normally say in an academic paper, you should never cite the Huffington Post. I'm sorry, Ariana Huffington, but it's not going to cut it, right? But in a in her particular paper, that was exactly right. But it's so hard as you're describing this to say, you know, the, the these are rules. But then once you know the rules, it's like becoming an artist, you know, once you know the rules for art and design, then you break them and you become, you know, world famous <laughs> because you did that. But um, it's very hard. It's hard to explain. And I don't know about you, but it's it certainly in the courses that I teach, you're teaching such a broad level of experience and skills and prior knowledge. It's it's really a, it's an exhilarating challenge, but certainly a challenge nonetheless. Yes, and, and uh, I, I love the way that you, you brought up uh, uh, breaking the rules. I, th- I think it's important to be able to allow a little bit more room for, for not only mistakes, but also kind of creativity and they try things. because And we don't need to control everything. Yes. Uh, we need to let go of our control because it's their learning. It's not me teaching them. That's the most important thing. It's them learning. So I think uh, if they if they go on a path you never see anyone go, that could be an interesting path. <laughs> and and don't don't make them go on the main road <laughs> because yeah. there's a lot of people on the main road. We don't need more people there. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's all when I occasionally am doing what's called retrieval practice, and it's a multiple choice question. And, and so they'll, they'll answer it. And I have the answers hidden, how people, how other people are answering. So they don't get swayed by what other people say. And then I'll sometimes then unhide the answers and say, well, what do you think? Who's right? And I always love when they can explain why one of the answers that wasn't the intended answer was correct in their mind, because I think that's the deepest learning of all. But I mean, Mm. understandably, though, they are going to be asked to take tests on the (laughs) information. So I mean, it's not I don't want to pretend that that I have I can just leave them there and say, well, no, that, you know, I guess every Mm. answer is right. (laughs) because sometimes it's not. But I do think that's so helpful for their learning to go through that path that may be even the wrong answer, but there's some really interesting clues along the way that will actually, when they get to what the right answer is, make them understand it way more than if they hadn't been going on that little side path in the first place. Yes, and and, uh, certainly in in health profession education and medical education, we are are in this new century, uh, the facts are changing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we can't really rely on, on... on what we learned in school, <laughs> because then we're not relevant. Uh, and when patient safety is not, <laughs> that that's not good if we are relying on what we learned in school. So uh, that is not the, the competence that we need. 
most important competence uh, to to educate our students anymore. Uh, of course, they need to know the facts, but they they need to kind of know how to check the facts and and how to to interpret uh, and apply apply the facts. That um, is, uh, it is a very challenging time, and and it, it becomes. I think I see that curriculum is kind of having that content overload. We keep on pushing things in in the curricula uh, with content, and and maybe we should uh, take a step back as. Uh, the Lancet Commission uh, had a report uh, just a couple of years ago saying that, well, we need to have change agents. We need to have health professionals that are able to evolve with the society. What are some other ways that you keep your own learning evergreen or that you advise others to do the same? Oh, I. <laughs> well, this is this is going to sound like I'm I'm flattering you, but I'm I'm a podcast listener. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> I truly am, mm. and I I like I like to listen, and uh, maybe it's because I I don't really find the time to read long books with the, the family situation right now. But I I I like to to listen to people, and I like to listen also to people that discuss things, because. Uh, kind of uh, trigger my thoughts as well. But then after that, I need to discuss it with some peers. So uh, I I love to start with a podcast or uh, an article or something, and then I, I would like to to meet my peers and and uh, discuss it amongst those. And I uh, I have some in Karolinska Institute and I have some at the Red Cross University Hospital, but I. The main part I have on Twitter, it, it is a way to kind of, hmm, what do you think about this? And then we can we can uh, take it from there. I always find myself after the conversations with people such as yourself wanting to then have the conversation about the conversation. <laughs> but the, sometimes we record three or four weeks earlier. So I'm always going, who can I talk to? <laughs> but it's, it's so fun to get to talk to people like such as yourself. That's wonderful. Well, this is the point in the show where we each get to give some recommendations. And I have a piece of music I wanted to recommend. My dad actually sent it over to me and um, just this wonderful musician, Kristen Shenoweth. And this is um, a new album that she just put out called The Art of Elegance. And I'm just going to play a little bit of Let's Fall in Love. For you, why go and stall him? I am falling, my love is calling, why be shy? Fall in love, why shouldn't we fall in love? Our hearts are made of it, let's take a chance. Why be afraid of it? Let's close our eyes and make our... So hard for me to turn her off. <laughs> she's so good. <laughs> so that's just a oh, wonderful... Lovely. Oh, she's got so many good songs on this one. Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered. Zing went the strings of my heart, the very thought of you. They can't take that away from me. And a house is not a home and a bunch of others. It's really a great album. And she mm. just has such a great, it's both a classic take. You know, she doesn't go too far in terms of changing, I think, the original composer and songwriter's 
intent, but I mean, it's just her own, her own way of doing it. It's just a wonderful album. I highly suggest people listen. Mm, Great. What do you have to recommend today? So I'm not going to recommend a thing per se. I'm going to recommend a process or or something to do, and that is to co-create. And there is a lot of uh, tools to be able to co-create with your students or with your learners. You could use Google Docs or you can use Padlet and so on. I think we can add some in in the show notes. But to be able to co-create with people is amongst all, it's very enriching. And uh, I've learned a lot and and I have had so much fun doing it also. And uh, I think having fun in in learning is something uh, we should have more (laughs) Can you tell me about a time when you co-created something with your students, just so we can have a sense of what this looks like in your own classroom? So I was about to do a submission of a paper together with a colleague, two colleagues of mine. And I was, in the time I was in, was in Vancouver at a, at a meeting and my, uh, a colleague, she was in Rochester, uh, Elisa, and so we kind of edited the same document. And uh, this was in the beginning of the process when you are kind of uh, creating a lot and kind of figuring out how, what to put, where, and and being a bit um, <clears throat> not uh, brainstorming, but uh, in a way that you're getting ideas in it. And uh, I could see her blip. And then our other colleague, Justin, came in. And uh, I could see his blip, what he was writing at the same time as I was doing it. Being able to see what they were doing and and I'm doing it at the same time, we certainly got ideas from each other and then we just could build on each other doing it. So that was a really fun way of, of, of starting out the paper. It's great how many of these tools are just increasing the abilities we have to collaborate. Something so small, this is not truly what you're talking about, but it's a a related one to what you're talking about. I posted a file as a part of the show notes from last week's episode, and it's in Dropbox. And as many people might know, now Dropbox allows you to comment on files. And I think I can turn this off, but I, I just didn't even think about it. So I heard from one of the listeners saying, oh, this was such a great idea. She's accessing the PDF from last week's episode. Oh, this is a great idea. I'm going to try it in my classroom. And I thought, you know, here's just one other way of collaborating that we don't normally do. And they're just offering more and more opportunities for that that back and forth conversation, even with something I didn't intend on being a back and forth, which was just posting a shared link to a PDF file. It's really fun how they're they're just thinking that and building it into their own yeah. ways of of delivering their software. Yeah. Well, I just so appreciate you joining me and to have this conversation today. I know it's very late for you as we're recording, so I appreciate your just coming on to join this conversation. It's absolutely been delightful to get to talk to you. And we're actually face to face on Skype. It's great. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks. Thanks so much again to Teresa for being on today's Teaching in Higher Ed episode. And thanks to all of you for listening. I really appreciate getting to see this community growing. And I really appreciate those of you who have written a review recently for the show up on iTunes. It's so great to get other people discovering the show that way. And that's one of the ways the 
algorithm uses to bump it up in its ranking and let this community continue to grow. And if you have yet to subscribe to the weekly email, I do send out an email with all the show notes, the links to the things that Teresa and I talk about today, as well as future episodes. It's a single email a week. And if you want that to come into your inbox, you can go to teachingandhighered.com slash subscribe. And in addition on that same email, there's an article about either teaching or productivity each week. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next time. As always, if you have ideas about the show, get in touch with me at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. See you next time.